All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, tonight, uh, Scott is in Florida, and uh, Ryan, I think, is in Oklahoma City. He might be back right now, I don't know. So, um, tonight, uh, myself and Jim Anderson are teaching. If you guys have never had a chance to talk to or meet Jim Anderson, you're in for a treat. We'll sometimes discuss stuff after after I teach. Jim will come up and talk to me, and, and I feel like I'm getting a little class whenever because he's, he's always got enough knowledge that he's able to point out all the stuff that I missed in the text, um, which is really awesome. And so it, was, it, was, it really is, it's, it's always fun having him in class, but uh, Sunday was my first time to get to hear him teach and really enjoyed that as well. And, and he does a great job of kind of walking us through and helping us think through some of the stuff and talk it through. So I'm excited about that for you guys. Um, before we jump in, um, let me pray for us and we'll be too. Dear God, thank you for your word and uh, thank you for this group. Thank you for a chance to, to study it together and, and in freedom, the freedom to do that. Um, God, I pray that we would not take it for granted or um, yeah, take this lightly, um, but that the chance to study your word with brothers and sisters, seeking your will, seeking your spirit, that we would um, be delighted in that and that you would, um, Father, that you would grow us through this time. Um, I'm asking you to do what we can't in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. In Colossians 3 tonight. Um, starting off there. So you've got the sheet there where you can flip through it. You're going to be scribbling on that sheet in just a little bit. But um, one of my favorite statements about the Bible um, is one that comes from Tim Keller. And he says this, that most people think of the Bible as a list of rules and morals with stories sprinkled in to illustrate um, and, and Keller says actually the exact opposite of that is true, that the Bible is actually one big giant story with rules and morals sprinkled in to illustrate. Um, and that is that, that when you read through the scriptures and when you read through it um, properly, you see that there is one large unfolding narrative that is taking place from Genesis to Revelation of a God who created the world and the universe and everything in it, and then a, a world that broke away from Him in sin, but that He is actively working to redeem and restore to Himself through Jesus Christ. And, and so this is the grand large story, and the, the, the rules and ethics that come out of the Scriptures are not something, are not just generic, hey, these are good ideas on how to be good people. You should be a good person if you're a Christian, and so here's some ways to do that. Um, no, the, the rules and ethics and morals that come from the Scripture flow out of that story. They are based in the truths of that story, and in a sense, they illustrate the deeper truths of that story. And, and so that's what they are meant to be, and, and one of the places where we get to see that the best is in the writings of Paul. Um, because Paul always likes to, he, he gives plenty of commands to the church, but his commands are always rooted in deeper statements. Uh, a lot of scholars will talk about this. In Paul, you'll see the balance of the indicative and the imperative. So, yes, Paul has imperatives, that is, commands that he wants to give to us, but those are always rooted in indicatives, which are truths, uh, truth statements, truths about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what that makes us. 
Um, and so you'll always see these. The, the cleanest place to see it, the easiest place to see it, is in the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians is almost split right down the middle like this. The first three chapters, there's only one command, one imperative statement in the whole first half of the book. All it is is truths about God and about um, Jesus coming and saving us and about the Holy Spirit marking us as His own and all of these truths over and over and over again. And, and then once he gets to 4, chapter 4, he says, therefore, in other words, in light of the first three chapters, and then he goes into almost all imperatives from there on out. Colossians, which is a very similar book to Ephesians, has a little bit of that feel. The first half of the book, um, we talked about Jesus and His nature. And, and we talked about God's rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and taking us into the kingdom of light. We talked about Paul and the, the apostleship and ministry he got from God. We talked about kind of the gospel truths of our sins being forgiven. And now he will start to turn, as a matter of fact, actually it was in last week's text that you saw in verse 16, chapter 2 has these statements about how um, we have been circumcised in Christ. He's given us a new heart. We have been buried with Him in baptism, raised in new life. He took all of our sins and nailed them to the cross. And then in verse 16 of chapter 2, He says, Therefore, just like He does in Ephesians 4, and He starts to move from those statements into the commands, into the ethics. But Colossians is a little bit different. It's not quite as neat and clean of a break as Ephesians is. There's a bit of an overlap. Um, so, and that overlap flows into our text right here today. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 is completely, um, it is almost just a, a pattern of indicative imperative, indicative imperative, indicative imperative. And, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 is a great section of Scripture. If you were to summarize the Christian life in kind of a nutshell, what the Christian life should look like, like what our ethics should be, it would be Colossians 3, 1 through 17. This is how you live in light of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And so we're going to get to read through that um, together just kind of to, to make sure we're connecting the dots. Last week closed with Paul telling the Colossians to avoid what these, um, these outside forces were coming in and telling them. Um, remember, we've been talking about how there are these outside forces, most likely Judaizers, maybe some kind of pagan mystery cult influence too, telling them how they can be really spiritual, how they can be really in on God's plan, really in as a part of God's people. And, uh, and, and Paul says, you are to avoid that. I want to read to you chapter 2, verse 20. Paul's about to rebuke this, this um, worldly means of growth, this worldly way of becoming spiritual. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So he's talking about these people who are coming in and saying, the really spiritual people don't eat that kind of food. The really spiritual people um, don't engage in that type of activity. And, and they're completely neutral things. The food, the drink... The activities are completely neutral things, but somebody is telling them, if you were really spiritual, you would avoid those things. You would give all those things up. Paul says, no, that's, that's the world's way of thinking. 
He says, these, these rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Um, so this becomes the, the big issue. He says, these things look really good. They look really spiritual when you have a guy who's giving up a lot of stuff to, um, to kind of um, make life harder on himself. Severity to the body. It looks really nice. But the truth is, it has no value in actually stopping sin in the life of a person. And now he's going to tell them, now let me tell you what really godly behavior looks like. Let me show you what it really looks like to grow and to stop the sinful indulgence of the flesh. This is our passage here. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Um, I'll just read it out loud for us. I want to, like I said, I'm going to read all the way through. It's a little long, but it's worth hearing. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. By the way, this isn't part of what I'm talking about. This is just bonus for you. Um, you may have noticed in that last paragraph, this word thankful comes up three times in there. An interesting exercise is to look through the book of Colossians that every time the idea of thankfulness or gratefulness, gratitude, comes up in the book of Colossians. Fascinating how often Paul goes back to that. And then to ask yourself this question, why? Why does he keep talking about that so much in this book? That's later homework for you to do by yourself. Um, here's, so here's kind of Paul's big picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. And next week he's going to get into more specifics about here's what it looks like as a husband. Here's what it looks like as a wife. Here's how you live this out as a child or as an um, employer or employee or any of those things. But for now we're just looking at the big picture. As I mentioned though, Paul goes back and forth between indicative and imperative statements 
in this passage. A, a really great practice when you are interpreting, when you are studying the Word of God and walking through it, is to link those things up. So when there is a command, make note of it, imperative statement right here, and then ask yourselves, in what truth is this command rooted? In, to what indicative statement does this connect? So that's actually what we're going to do right now. We're going to take three, four minutes, and I want you to read through. You have the sheet here. I want you to read through, and I want you to mark the imperative statements, and I want you to mark the indicative statements, however you want to do that. Circles for imperative, squares for indicative, or straight line, squiggly line, whatever you want to do. And then I want you to find in each imperative, I want you to draw a connecting arrow to the indicative statement that that is rooted in. In other words, we do this command because of what? What does Paul link it to? So take four or five minutes, do that, and then we'll, and then we'll break it down together. All right. Papers down, pencils on the desks. Um, okay, so you had a chance to kind of walk through those, mark those up. Here's what I want to do. We're actually just going to march through each of the commands in this text, each of the uh, imperative statements, talk about those, explain those a little bit, and then I want us to do the work of tracing, okay, so what truth, what indicative statement is this command rooted in? The first command you see comes right in verses 1 and 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. So the problem, Paul says, with the, with the um, methods that he just described in chapter 2, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, getting caught up in festival days and all of these things. The problem with those, he says, is that they only go skin deep. They can't... They can't restrain the indulgence of the flesh because they're not getting to the core of who you are. These are external practices that you're hoping will kind of change you. And he says it doesn't work that way. Instead, Paul is describing something that goes from the inside out. Um, So the first command he gives is this, orient your mind and your hearts around the things of God. So, so orient your life, immerse yourself in this in such a way that your, your mind, and I do believe he would imply with that your hearts, in fact there's some translations that instead of saying seek the things that are above, say set your hearts on the things above. So you set your minds and hearts around the things of God. Practically speaking, this means immersing ourselves in the truths of Scripture through reading, Um, through meditating on them, through listening to them being preached or taught to us, through discussing them with other believers. It is consistently setting our minds on those things in a world that is consistently drawing our minds to anything else. Paul says we need to be setting our minds on the things that are above where Christ is. Why does he say that we do this? According to the text, why do we set our minds on things above? Okay, because you were raised with Christ. Um, because you have been raised with Christ and, and you are now hidden. Um, your life is now hidden with Him. Um, when Christ who is your life appears, He says, then you will appear with Him also. The reason we do this is because we've died to the things of this world, been raised with Christ, and, and there is this weird sense Paul seems to be talking about. I say weird. 
weird to us because it's hard for, hard for me to grasp. And in our modern Western mindset, we just don't talk or think like this. But, but the Bible seems to lay forth for us that there are two dimensions that we are all living in. That there is a physical plane and a physical dimension that we live in, that we can see and feel and interact with. But at the very same time that we are in a spiritual plane too. That we are living in a spiritual plane where there are very real things going on, very real activities taking place, and there's a very real, um, uh, very real movement within that spiritual place that we have undergone when we go, um, when we have come to Christ. Um, he says this in the very first that that the Father has removed us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light that you have moved from one place to another. And so Paul says, the reason you set your mind on things above is because your position, where you actually are spiritually, is not here. It's not in the things of this world. And your identity is not in here. And your identity is not shaped by the things of this world, by the things of sin and darkness. It is shaped by the things up there. So we set our minds there. Um, the illustration I got to think through with this is, um, imagine for a second that you move from Stillwater, Oklahoma, um, and you move from Stillwater, Oklahoma up to Calgary in Canada, and you're living all the way up in Canada now, and so you've moved there and you're trying to adjust, but imagine that on your weather app in your phone, you've left as the home, like as kind of the starting point, you leave Stillwater there. And every morning you get up and you base your day's plans and the way you're going to dress based on that weather app that's reporting to you the weather from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, You're going to find yourself um, dressed poorly for Canada because basically every day it's going to be telling you really freaking hot and muggy, okay? That's Stillwater, Oklahoma. And, and if you dress like that every day in Canada, you're going to be in trouble. The problem would be is that you are basing your choices and you're basing the way you're going to live and feel and move through that day based on a reality that is taking place somewhere else and not on the reality that you actually live in. Not on what is actually true about you now. Not on where you actually are in a way that I cannot fully comprehend or get my mind around. Paul says that when I die to the things of this world, that I am, my life is now in Jesus, which is in God. He says here, Jesus is at the right hand of God, which would seem to imply that I am standing right here talking to you on this stage and simultaneously in the throne room of God in a way that I can't, like I said, I can't even fully get my mind around. And if I get caught up in the stuff of this earth, if I get caught up in the domain of darkness and the way the culture works all around me, then I lose sight of that reality where I really am and I let it dictate my actions. I'll let the things of the world around me dictate my actions when A, Paul says you don't have to do that anymore. You're dead to all of that. And B, that's really foolish to do that. It's like wearing a tank top and shorts in the middle of a Canadian winter, okay? It's just foolish to do that. Um, this, of course, is a lot harder because if I, if I move to Canada, like I can look out the window and see the weather and I'm experiencing around me, but, but you and I, we are in the presence of God, caught up in Christ, and yet it just doesn't seem that way very often in our life. That's not something that's tangible and in front of us a lot of times. 
He even says it here. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when He appears, then your life will appear with Him. Paul is even kind of saying, I know it doesn't look like it, and you're not even fully going to be able to see the glorious new you. You're not even fully be able to understand this until He shows up, and that's why it is so important that we are consistently putting our minds on the things above, consistently focusing on that reality of who I am in Jesus and where He's placed me um, in the presence of God. So this basic understanding you're going to see is at the root of all of Paul's instructions here. Here's the next command he gives. It comes in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. One of the biggest problems in our dealings with sin, if not perhaps the biggest problem with our, in our dealings with sin, is that we do not seem to take the same radical view of sin that God does and that the Bible does. The Bible says over and over again, kill it, put it to death, do whatever you have to do to rid yourself of it. And oftentimes, rather than kill it, we would kind of prefer to tame it. Um... To, to, take the, to take the big lion that has the ability to, to destroy us and just kind of see if we can keep him kind of in check and, and, and keep him... He's, it's not going to be that dangerous if I just make sure I kind of keep him in this room out of the main living room area of my house. I'll just kind of keep him back here. And I think I can keep him contained back there. And, and that's a lot of times the way we operate with sin is rather than just killing it, I want to make sure I just get it down to manageable to where it's not like ruining my life to where it's not all my sin isn't all that obvious to everybody around me, to where I'm not engaging in the really, really bad stuff, just kind of the little harmless things, if you will. And we take that approach to sin where the Bible says that's not right, that's not okay, you kill your sin. John Owen, John Owen the Puritan writer, says it like this, we must be killing our sin or our sin will be killing us. So only two options, only two choices there. Paul says, put it to death, but why does he say that? What is the truth that this command is rooted in? Okay, so there's, there's two. There's a throwback, okay? If you look in uh, at verse 5, put to death, what's the word there? Therefore, which means he's building on what he just said. So he actually goes back to four again with it. Because you have died and are risen with Christ is the first thing. Um, so because you've died to this, so you've, you already have died, now it's time to put the actions themselves to death. Okay, that, So we match those things up. So that's the first thing. Um, and he says that because you died to it, again, it's not just you died to it, so this is the right thing to do. Because you're dead to it, the right thing to do is get rid of all the sin stuff. Paul's actually, I even believe, saying, because you died to it, you now have the ability to put all of that stuff to death. You don't have to do those things anymore. Romans 6.6, 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He says, we died so that you don't have to be enslaved to that stuff anymore. You don't have to do it anymore. That's why you put it to death. That's why you can put it to death. And the other reason that he seems to actually touch on is what Rebecca just mentioned, and that is that our sins are so serious and so wicked and so, um, so 
awful and terrible that God's anger burns against it. And one day, the wrath of God is going to rain down on all the sins of the world, and you don't want to be a part of those kinds of things. You don't want to be a part of the things that God is going to rain His wrath down on. And so put it to death, Paul says. The next command comes in verses 7 through 9. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. You catch that? That kind of goes along with our statement that Paul says you weren't just doing these things, you were physically like in that domain. You were living in that. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to each other. So he adds to the first list, which was sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He adds to him this second list of things. And and this second list, every one of them actually has something in common. What is that? What, What do all of these sins have to do with? Emotion, a little bit. What was that? Talking, yeah, it does definitely. There's a lot of reference on the how we speak to one another. But I think that actually that, that, that last word or that last couple words there is the thing. To each other. All of these actually have to do with how you interact with other people, specifically with the body of Christ. And a lot of it is with our words and with our passions. Anger is something you're angry at people, wrath malice, slander, all of these things have to do with the interactions of the body together, how the church ought to act with one another. And why does he say that we um, put all of these things away? What's, what's the indicative here? Okay, because 9b it says at the back of 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, he keeps stressing this. The old part of us is gone. Probably the most famous verse referencing this idea is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. So what you were before you came to Jesus you're not just a better version of that now. You're not a new and improved version of what you were before Jesus. No, that you is entirely gone. And you're a new person, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Um, One of the best word pictures I've kind of been given for this, for the way Christians tend to operate sometimes with our sin is, if you've ever watched um, an athlete who, who... sustains a major injury to one of their legs. Maybe they tear an ACL or they sprain an ankle or whatever and it jacks them up pretty bad and they're limping around on it and hobbling until they get surgery or go through some kind of rehab or get some kind of cast on it. And after that whole process is done, when the doctor finally says, you're back to 100% now, you're fully what you were supposed to be, um, you're free to go out and play. They'll go out and they'll start running. But every now and then, and, and maybe if you were an athlete in high school, maybe you experienced this, you'll catch that person still favoring that leg, still almost slightly limping on it just a little bit. It's like they can't get it out of their mind. They got so used to running that way 
that they can't, it's, it's almost hard to stop that habit. That, I believe, is, is a great picture of what happens to us in Jesus. That when we come to Him, that everything that was broken in us is restored and made brand new. We are back to 100% again, if you will. Um, but sometimes our hearts have been so habituated towards sin that we still walk with a limp, if you will, when we don't have to anymore. You don't have to do those things anymore. You don't have to live in those things. Um, I really do believe that we sin sometimes because we believe false things about ourselves. Um, like this idea that like I can't make it, can't even make it one night without having to look at porn. This idea that like I can't, like I feel like I just can't be happy unless I'm buying more stuff and like getting more stuff for myself. Um, or that it's just impossible. The way this person hurt me and wronged me, I cannot get over this. Like, it's impossible for, for me to forgive them or to stop being angry. The Bible says every one of those statements is a lie. You, you, you do not have to be enslaved to those things in, in you anymore. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is stronger than porn. And if, and if the joy of Jesus is inside of you, then you don't need stuff to try and add on to that. And if Christ died to forgive you and give you a new kind of heart, then you don't have to hold on to the sins that are against you anymore. Those things are not true of people who are in Christ. Um, last, little, last little bits of commands, verses 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what you may notice is this new list that he gives, which is a list of virtues, in contrast to the vice list, this is actually the flip side of the vice list he just gave us. So the vice list was negative interactions with people, being angry or hateful or slanderous towards people. And he's saying we don't treat people that way, we treat the body of Christ like this. Um, we, we put on these kinds of things. Um, and the indicative the, the, that this is rooted in, the truth that, that roots this command is what? Yes, I believe so. I believe there's actually, that's the main one, and then other ones are sprinkled in. So the main truth is verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Um, so he says, when you come to Christ, there is no longer a division between Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer any division between slave or free or male or female or anything. We are all one in Christ. We all stand on equal footing as loved. And he says this, put on then what? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's the new identity, not Jew, not Gentile, chosen, beloved, holy. And that understanding right there is key to Christian unity key to Christian unity. Because if I understand this truth, 
that I am holy and beloved by God, then I have no reason to jockey for position and to try and get myself ahead of you. How much further can I get than holy and loved by God? Chosen by Him, His Son. I can't move beyond that. So I have no reason to try and push you down and get myself ahead of you. And if it's true of you that you are His child, holy and beloved, chosen by God, then what right or, or even any desire would I have to be hateful towards you? You, the Holy One chosen by God. When I understand those things, that makes way for unity. Um, here, are the last, here are the last few verses. I'll just read these and we'll tie it in. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Um, These last few verses are held together by two parallel phrases. The first is in 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The next one in 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These two kind of twin ideas coming together. And neither of those commands, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, neither of those are individual commands. In other words, the you there is second person plural. Um, He's not talking about an inner peace that I experience because of God in my life and I don't have to worry about the stressful things in this world. No, he's talking about a peace that dwells amongst you, plural, amongst the body. There ought to be that kind of peace amongst us. And the word, he's not just talking actually about me sitting alone doing my devotions and letting the word dwell in me. He's talking about the word dwelling in the church, that together we take in these things and we allow it to change us. Um, And this is actually where he's going in the final two verses when he says, um, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's talking about corporate worship. He's talking about the coming together of the body to join in these things. And so if I could mark out the flow of thought in this little section of Scripture, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, it would be this. The world says um, <clears throat> the world says that we do or do not do certain things. Usually it's don't do certain things in order to become, you fill in the blank. In order to become holy, then you make sure you do these things. In order to become loving, then you make sure you don't do these things. If you want to be spiritual, then you don't do these things. That's the world system. But the Christian system, Paul says, is completely opposite. That is... You already are those things. You already are holy. You already are spiritual. You already are in Christ. So just live out what's already true. Set your mind on things above. And, and, and do this, that, that becomes the next thing. So in order to live out what is already true about ourselves, we orient ourselves around the truths of Scripture.
if we're going to live out what is already true of us, we are going to need to soak in what is true about us. We're going to need to immerse ourselves in that and orient ourselves around these truths, who Jesus is and what he's done, which determines who we are and how we are to work. So you see this come up over and over again. Set your minds on things above. He says that we are renewed within knowledge. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And last is this, according to these last couple verses, we do not orient ourselves around truth as individuals alone. Instead, um, we allow these truths to shape us in corporate worship. So yes, it is true that I want to spend time reading God's Word in the morning by myself to fill up. It is true that I want to try and memorize and meditate on those things. All of those things are true, but, but all of that ought to flow actually from me being tied to a church, connected to a body that is together being filled up with these truths, that is together hearing these things about our identity and living those things out as we love one another and care for one another. That is what shapes me and allows me to grow into the kind of person God designed for me to be, and that is what allows the church to do that very thing. Now, these are big truths. Put your mind on things above. Live out what's already true about you. Put sin to death. Those are big things and and sort of easy to say, but sort of hard to do. And in fact, really hard to do. And in fact, hard to even really understand sometimes. And so in just a couple of minutes, we'll take a break here. And then Jim is going to get up and and actually walk us through um, what those things look like and what it means um, to live out who we already are. So we'll do that in just a bit. Whenever, um, whenever we get to the different questions, a lot of times I, I like to just ask three or four, maybe five questions and just throw them out. You can respond to any question you want or, you know, whenever we open it up for discussion, if you will, if you have a, a thought that doesn't necessarily fit completely with the particular questions, but it's a thought that's germane to the conversation and please go right ahead and feel free to share those things um, because I, I um, would like some dialogue uh, for sure. Um, this passage in Colossians 3, 1 through 17 um, is a very powerful passage and it describes pretty, very well the Christian life and what we're called to do in many ways in a nutshell. One author had said that this passage, that if you took a title, it would be Become What You Are. Become What You Are. There's a tension in our lives, a tension between earthly and spiritual, between what is godly and what's not godly. We're certainly Christian people. We believe in Jesus. We put our confidence in Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We have a new life. Um, Drew uh, talked about the passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, if any man is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Kenneth Bailey, in a 
book about Paul and uh, uh, Paulus, um, I forget the name of it, Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes. In that book, Kenneth Bailey says that if you went back to the Greek and you looked at some of the manuscripts, it just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. He doesn't say he is or she is. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. And he leaves it there. There's, there's not those connecting words that we see. And in Paul's mind, we're in Christ. We're new creations. We have new life. And that new life is to be lived as Jesus lived with the very highest of standards. Jesus did not sin. But I sin. And there's a tension in my life um, between the new life in Jesus and that new creation and my own inconsistent behavior that includes my errors and my sins. We must become what we are, new creations. If you would think about some dance that you've seen, some dancer on stage, somebody that's mature and strong, and somebody that comes across that stage and leaps and twists and turns and pirouettes and moves gracefully and strongly and powerfully and you you see that person on stage and you're that captures your imagination and you see that dance and you you you're just moved by that dance if you go back and back a few years and that person's 3 4 5 they stepped on the floor. They were a dancer. They were becoming a dancer. They were a dancer. They put their little body out there on that floor and they moved. And they moved across that floor. You think about it, it wasn't as graceful or as pretty or as strong or powerful back when that dancer was five or six or seven. Probably a lot of... <clears throat> of uh, sprained ankles, sprained knees, twisted backs, bruised toes, and that sort of thing before that dance occurred on that stage that you saw that was powerful and graceful and beautiful. There was time and there was work and there was energy that was put into that. There was inspiration for that. And so, if you think about our lives in Christ and you begin to think about that just a moment, that hopefully our lives become like that strong, powerful dance as we move through the Christian life. Move gracefully and, and less stubbed toes, less twisted ankles, less sprained knees, less sin, less cursing, less anger, less frustration, and more joy, more peace, more humility, more kindness. Hopefully the dance gets better as we go on but there is that tension in us and there is that becoming what we are. Okay? Um, would someone please read verses 1 through 4? Can you hear me? Can you, okay. Verses 1 through 4, please. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Okay. In those first four verses in chapter 3, Paul gives a strong statement regarding our baptism. Basically, he says that we were raised, and if you think about that in terms of Christian, the, the sort of symbolic representation, we were buried in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. In the action of baptism, we die to sin, we rise to walk in a new life. In these verses, Paul says that our minds change. We learn to set our minds on things above as a result of that being raised. Okay? In Galatians 2.20, Paul states that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And we have this new creation, this new identity, if you will. Surely our minds and our lives change with our faith, with our baptism, with that newness. And so the question, I want to pose these questions to us. Who are we? Who am I? How important is your identity to you? How important is our identity? How do we think about ourselves? How does our identity change our behavior? Yeah, we're we're ready for comments. Just uh, it, it, we're we're ready. <laughs> so who are we? Excuse me. My dad died when I was 11 years old. And so uh, 
I went through adolescence kind of searching for a male figure to identify with. And uh, I really never found them. I, I never found that male figure as an adolescent. And I don't know what my identity was sometimes. Um, <laughs> that lack of identity, I was arrested a couple of times and that sort of thing. And I think that came from not having an identity in a way. I wasn't really embarrassed to be arrested. I remember, I don't know, I guess I'm about 17 with one of the arrests. And I remember that my father had died six years before that, okay? And I remember not being embarrassed until he said, you're Bill and Johnny's boy, aren't you? And he called on my, my dead father's name, basically, to call me to account for my behavior. And up until that moment, until he called my dad's name, I didn't care that I was arrested. I wasn't embarrassed. It didn't bother me. But when he called my dad's name, there was at least a momentary pause that made me reflect a little bit that maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Now, God our, and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit surely are more important than my dead father. Okay? And surely it should give me pause to reflect in regard to my identity um, in in that, okay? Um, let's move on, okay? Uh, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, would someone read that? Thank you. In this new life that we're given, um, we're to put to death sin. Um, in those first uh, four words that Paul uses in verse 5 all relate to various forms of sexual sin. Improper thinking, lustfulness, uh, fornication, and improper uh, forms of sexual activity. He then goes on and he lists greed um, as idolatry. And then he moves on in verse 8. He lists different forms of anger and improper speech. He tells us the old clothes, those clothes that we had on before our baptism, before we were became a new creation, that those old clothes we put off and were clothed with a new self. 
And Paul says, put, to sin, put sin to death. How strongly can Paul say it? it? It's hard to say it any stronger than that. To put it to death. Okay? So what are, what are our problems with putting sin to death? How is it that we struggle with it? How difficult is confession? And what hinders it? Definitely one of my favorite quotes about my memory tells me my did, I did it. My pride says that I couldn't have. And the inexorable march of my pride extinguishes my memory. So that my pride puts to death and he thought that I could have done anything wrong. I mean, I'm just perfect and that's just the way I am, right? Okay. So what else hinders us besides our pride? There's a fear in that, isn't there? There, there is a fear of of that. I, I remember. I've talked to any number of people that have had different addictions, and at times, I've basically just asked, "You're afraid to give up the marijuana every day, aren't you?" And sometimes people are honest enough to say, yes, I am. And sometimes we're afraid of those challenges, aren't we? We're afraid. I uh, read a book called Embodying Forgiveness by Gregory Jones. It's a wonderful book. And in it, it made me think about confession and, and that that I, I personally believe that confession is basically becomes a way of life. That we confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, but also, you know, I, I think that sin is way more than not just doing the bad things. I think that sin is also not doing the good things. I, I think that we have to support life and we have to be encouraging to other people and we have to speak... It, it's not just the absence of bad. In James, you know the, in the book of James it says that to him who knows to do good and does not, what? What does it say? To him who knows to do good but does not, it is... It's sin. To not do the good, the things that we're called to do, the people we're called to be. 
It's not just the absence. It's also God didn't put us on this earth just to be neutral and not to be negative. He put us on this earth to be positive, right? (laughs) Okay. I'm afraid to confess because I'm embarrassed. I'm afraid to confess because I'm proud. I lack the courage to confess. I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of change. I despair the process. I think it's too much for me. I don't want to confess because if I confess, I have to give up the familiar. I have to give up the familiar comfortable thoughts and attitudes and actions. I don't confess because I don't trust myself to confess because if I confess, that means I want to change, right? And I'm afraid to change, so I'm afraid to confess because I don't trust myself. I'm afraid it might be a false confession. If I confess, then am I not a, I'm obligated, right, to God to, to do to begin to move in the direction. So I'm afraid to confess because if I confess that makes me a hypocrite if I don't move that way, right? I don't confess because I don't trust God. I don't trust God that He will continue to complete the work within me. And I don't trust that God's going to deliver me. And therefore, I don't confess. And the other reason that I don't confess is because I blow right by it. I need a day of atonement. I need a day to think about my sin. You know, it's not... I don't ever confess because I won't ever take the time to think about my sin. I won't ever stop to think, you know, there was an opportunity that I had to do something good for someone. But I passed it up. But I'm not going to think about that because I'm going to think about something else. And therefore, there's a certain amount of thinking that goes into this. Any responses? Do you, am I the only one? And and I think that that the planning to avoid certain places, certain times, certain things, um, certain conversations, just knowing that I don't belong in certain conversations. I don't belong in the conversation running people down. I don't belong in the conversation of uh, talking about people as though they're less than what I am. I don't belong in those conversations. I don't belong in, the, in that way of thinking. Okay. Let's go on to uh, verses 12 through 17. Go ahead. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in the word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Okay. And Paul gives us this vision of new life. And that vision captures our hearts and our minds. Those virtues basically honor God and they inspire us. They're not necessarily innate. You take two-year-olds and you put a toy in the room, one toy, and see what happens. It's not innate. Okay, Those virtues are not innate. We learn them. How do we learn to have compassion and kindness? How do we learn to forgive? How do we learn to worship? How do we learn these things? By doing? Who in your life, tell me somebody in your life, some virtue that you see in someone that you like and that you want? Does anybody have someone that they look up to that has a virtue that they want? Who in your life has a virtue? Your mom. And what virtue is it that she has? She expresses love yeah. through kindness and through warmth. She expresses love. And so you go stand by her, right? You go stand by her and she rubs off on you a little bit. She changed your life. Okay. okay. Who else? What virtue? What virtue do you want? What virtue? One of the things that I sometimes do, it's one of my favorite things to do actually, about thinking about people, I will think about different people and I will think about the things that they've shown me, the way they've lived their life. 
I think about a friend named Ron Walcher, and Ron Walcher's one of the most passionate people I know. You're not going to know Ron long before he's going to talk to you about his faith and about why he thinks that you, you're, that you need to believe. I think about my grandmother. She's one of my favorite people in the whole wide world to think about, one of the strongest people I've ever known. She was one of the most consistently good people I've ever known. She went through so much. She suffered more. She, she was born in 1900. She goes through World War I with brothers and her husband in World War I. She goes through the Great Depression. Her first child dies when the child is less than two years old. She, she sends her second son to the, her second, and at that point, her only son off to World War II. Uh, she, she brings him back. She lives through burying her second son and her, her husband. She goes through all of those sorts of things, never will forget. When my father died, my grandmother said the only thing that she could think about was her four grandchildren and how they were going to get along. That's what she thought about. Strong lady, so I would encourage you to think about these, these things. How do we learn to forgive? Talk about it all the time in church. Talk all the time about forgiveness. I, I think that the Spirit is extremely important in forgiveness. It's, it's so hard to, to forgive when we've been wronged and wronged again and again. And there is an experiential thing about forgiveness for sure. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that I would encourage you in regard to the forgiveness is that there are a lot of questions about forgiveness. How do you know when you've forgiven? How do you forgive? How do you release the anger? How do you move towards a new relationship? Forgiveness, the aim, the final aim of forgiveness is reconciliation. You may not make it there, but the final aim of forgiveness is reconciliation. It's not just, I forgive you, I'll go on about my way and forget about you. That's okay. Forgiveness is a step towards reconciliation. Okay? God says, I forgave you, but eh, never mind, I don't want to be around you anymore. Uh-uh. God says, I forgive you, now let's reconcile and come together. And so, when I'm not saying that you're always going to make it, that it's always appropriate, etc., etc., but just as a general rule, as a general understanding, forgiveness is headed towards reconciliation. And then, finally, let's look at that last verse again, okay? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. In effect, we have the power of attorney for Jesus. We act on Jesus' behalf. It challenges. We need the thoughts, the attitudes, the words, the actions of Jesus. We do not want to excuse poor thinking, poor attitudes, poor words, and poor actions. We want to be inspired 
I think that sometimes we need to go to the mirror and look ourselves in the mirror and say, Hello, Jesus. How are you doing today? How are you? And take that identity on and look yourself in the mirror. All of us look ourselves in the mirror and say, Hello, Jesus. How are you doing today? How are you going to go about today, Jesus? And take that identity. Okay? So how do we fulfill the verse? And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. How do we do that? One of the lenses that you see your life through is through the lens of the cross. It's one of the ways you see your life. 